So today we resume our study of James, and we're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James, the half-brother of our Lord, pastor of the apostles in Jerusalem, writes thus. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Brothers and sisters, even this, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We ask that you indeed, by your spirit, would use it to convict and comfort our hearts. We ask, O oh God, that you would be pleased by the meditations I bring and that you would get the glory from the fruit that the Spirit may bear. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. All right. So when I read this passage, um, you likely had an internal reaction. Um, because, let's, let's face it, there's, there, there, there's this two-pronged approach to Christianity. People either take one of two tracks, I should say. One, and it's increasingly common, it's been around, real popular, I guess, since the mid-20th century, but it says that God is opposed to wealthy people. If you're wealthy, if you're a have, you're part of the problem, period. No qualification, on the other hand, there's a tendency that has become very popular to say that money equals blessedness, or probably stated conversely is more accurate for their position, blessedness equals money. How do you know that you're favored by the Lord? You're rich. The Lord blesses with abundance his people, and so if you just believe right, your, your coffers will be overflowing. That's what we're told either way. And both of those are wrong. But we come to passages like this, and it does sting a little. For who can live in America in the 21st century and drive cars and have clothes and have a house and not feel that perhaps when the Bible speaks of the rich that it may indeed be speaking 
of us. So who is this passage addressing? That is the question. And there are some who think that this passage is talking to believers. He's talking to people in the church. I do not share that opinion. With most conservative scholars, what I see here is that he is stepping into the role, donning the mantle of Old Testament prophet. In fact, I'm going to wager that as I was reading this passage, I bet you said, that sounds like something from Isaiah 13 through 19, or, or from any of the minor prophets, or, or Ezekiel, whatever. That sounds like something from the Old Testament. Indeed, it does. And the key reason, the key justification we have for seeing verses 1 through 6 as a prophetic oracle against someone outside the body is precisely because of verse 7, which we didn't read in this passage. What does verse 7 say? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, so verse 7 is James's reflection to the people of God in light of what I'm saying here in verses 1 through 6, here is what I want you to do. You may remember from the beginning of this book, he tees off talking about trials of various kinds. Indeed, in chapter 2, verse 6, he, he sheds a little more light on the nature of the acute problem when, when he talks about wealthy people outside the church are, are the ones oppressing and marginalizing and exploiting them. And now this. So, scholars are fairly convinced that he's addressing a common situation in the first century. Land ownership was held in by just a few. And the rich, like in many societies, really, really keep everyone else under thumb. And so these Christians then were being exploited, were being uh, taken advantage of, they were being oppressed by the wealthy people who just simply wanted to extend their own reach of influence and protect their own positions. So why is it here? Why does the Bible, not, not, not just this passage, but let's back up a step further, why does the Bible include messages that are for, ostensibly for, the people out there, but not tell those people? It's, it's telling me, instead of telling them, a message that is for them. Why does it do that? We'll get there in a moment. But first, one of the things we have to come to terms with when it speaks of the rich right here is that there in the Bible is a very clear theology of being rich. Rich and poor are theological concepts. 
in the Bible, okay? Ever since the rise of liberation theology, you have been conditioned to every time you see the word poor, and you see it in the Gospels a lot, you think, oh, God is intrinsically for poor people. And you see, you have been conditioned to think that God is intrinsically opposed to rich people. That's not the case. And in fact, there's a very complex theology of rich and poor. But I will say this. When it comes to rich, when that word rich is used, it's conjuring up more than the idea of mere affluence. It's conjuring up a theology of a person who has given themselves to the material world and they are committed to the principle that the more stuff I have, the more security I have, therefore the more confidence I can have that my tomorrow will turn out okay. The rich is a theological picture of a person who in comfort has no room for God, has no concern for others, lives in blissful ignorance of and indifference to the problems and struggles around. They simply want to enjoy theirs and get more of it. But be very careful the Bible is very clear in a whole number of places that affluence is not inherently sinful. In fact, there are a bunch of places where God will bless this or that person with significant material wealth. In the same way, poverty Poverty in Scripture actually is attributed to one of three principal causes. Did you know that? And did you know that the attitude that the Bible tells you to have towards the poor is entirely contingent upon the reason for their poverty? Paul is not joking when he says, he, he, he's not setting up some, some, some Mexican standoff or, who blink, or a game of chicken, who blinks first. When he says, if a man won't work, let him not eat, he means it. The book of Proverbs is clear that more often than not, poverty comes on the basis of unwise, sinful living. And poverty is a sign, then, of God's judgment on the person's poor living. But that, that's not absolute, because another cause of poverty is oppression. Another cause of poverty is providential misfortune. They're an agrarian culture, and they're dependent upon the man to go and plow the field. What happens if he dies? Poverty comes upon them. And so in those cases, you're supposed to bend over backwards to help. So the Bible is not just black and white saying rich, bad, poor, good, or poor, bad, rich, bad. No, it depends. But understand the construct here. When it says rich, 
It's not meaning if you have a bank account that is not month to month, you're rich. That's not what he means. He's referring to the people who in the greedy pursuit of material possessions have very little real concern for anybody or anything else. And they exploit, they take advantage of, they do everything in their power, they leverage their position to insulate themselves from the concerns of the world. Paul, in 1 Timothy 6, gives a positive word to the wealthy. What does he say? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he addresses some of the temptations in, in what he says here, but notice one thing he doesn't say. He doesn't say, tell the rich to get rid of their money. Wait a minute, Ben. What, what, what about what he says to the rich young ruler? Think of the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and that is, that is one of the most abused passages in the Middle Ages. The most monastic movements started uh, out of a misapplication of this passage, Matthew 19. Remember Matthew 19? There's a rich young person, of, a born of social prominence. He comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, which one? And he, he, Jesus' names rattles off a few. And he goes, I've, I've done all this since I was a kid. And Jesus says, there's only one thing you lack. And what does he say? Sell all your possessions and then come back and follow me. And then it says, the rich young man went away sad because he had many possessions. And so there's this great thing. Oh, Jesus says you got to give. This is the only time Jesus ever said that. Did you know that? When he goes to visit Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and he preaches in Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus gets saved, what does he say he will do? I'll give half my money to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give them four times back. Well, that's all wonderful, but guess what? That's not sell all your possessions. You see, what's Jesus doing in Matthew 19? He's pricking and pushing right at the point of his idol. His money was ultimately that which he had his trust in. And he pushes right there because there can only be one master of your life. And isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24? No one can have two masters. You can only have one master. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says as much. Now this passage here then is in here not because it's wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to want a, uh, a good return on your investment. 
It's not wrong to work hard and enjoy the fruits thereof. That's not what he's talking about at all. But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't caution us against wanting to be rich. Indeed, Paul says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he goes on to say, for the love of money is what? It's a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Which is why Hebrews 13.5 implores you, keep yourself free from the love of money. Because money is a wonderful tool, but it is a terrible master. And as this passage here in James 5 says, it is an utterly hopeless and worthless savior. So here in this passage, while he's not condemning wealth, he's not condemning advancement and achievement. He's addressing a perspective and a set of behaviors and a set of beliefs that have been exemplified by a certain group of people who are now persecuting and oppressing and, and, and hurting the church. So why is this passage here? If it's not to us, but to those outside. One, to shed light on the fact that God sees, hears, and is concerned about what the social haves do. The social haves breathe, they think, rarefied air. They think that the sky is the limit for them. They think the rules do not apply to them. They think they can get away with almost anything. From ridiculous Hollywood parties Business parties, the, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The social haves think that they are indeed a special class that can get away with whatever. And the fact of the matter is, God sees, God hears, and God is concerned about what they do. What have they done? This, this passage lists a few things. One, they've, they've defrauded their they're workers. They've, they've cheated people. And how, how, how do they do that? It doesn't say they've raw. There's many, many ways that we can defraud someone. And then what we do to justify it is we, well, according to the law, what I did was okay. Oh, you, you mowed my grass. Oh, you missed a spot. I'm not paying. And in a world... Like the first century, there was literally nothing they could do. There was no lawsuit to be filed, no small claims court. You think the Roman government gave a care? They've trod the righteous underfoot by condemning and murdering. Now, this is probably hyperbolic. But what it shows is a complete ambivalence and disregard for those around them. They've lived in 
luxurious self-indulgence thinking that the world revolves around them and that the working class exists for their pleasure, to be at their beck and call. And, and we're reminded of Jesus' parable in Luke 16 as a picture of what's going on here. The parable of rich man and, and Lazarus, where the text is really clear that, that, that this dude is so wealthy, he just, he wears purple linen and he feasts sumptuously. I love that word that it's in there. It wants you to know he's really living high on the hog. Every day. It says every day. And meanwhile, there's this dude who's so poor that he's begging for the scraps that the dogs eat. In fact, the dogs are the only ones to give him attention. And it's not the kind of attention you want. They're licking his open sores. It's disgusting. But, but what's it a picture of? It's a picture of a guy who is so self-absorbed and concerned about his comfort and his self that he literally has a guy dying there and he doesn't care. Utter ambivalence. And at some level, ambivalence is actually passively asserted malice. And so, God wants you to know that he sees, he hears, he understands, and he's concerned about what the haves do. Secondly, he wants to underscore the utter folly the other folly and vanity of that which they have trusted in. We are an embodied species. We are not angels. We don't exist as disembodied spirits. We are embodied. We have flesh and blood and we exist on a material world. And I think Madonna said it right. What did she say? About being a what? Material girl? Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> They've placed all their emphasis on their nice clothes. It's comfortable. And it's, when it's hot, I mean, you, you don't want to sit around in, in tacky clothes. You just, you want to change. Oh, it's, so you have the nicest linen, breathable. Oh, I'm so comfortable. And oh, yeah, look at these. Ugh, they're wearing they're wearing scraps, and they're gold, and they're silver. Oh, man. And so the prophet uses the language that their riches, their bank account, which would have been mostly in grain, is moth-eaten and rotten, and that the gold and the silver have corroded. And he points out their folly. In verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, they're so self-absorbed that they have utter lack, utter absence of situational awareness. It would literally be like straightening up the tables on the Titanic. It's the last days. The end is at hand and you're worried about building and taking care of and making sure your, your finances are well taken care of. It's a picture, like from Luke chapter 12, when Jesus tells 
the parable of the rich man who's, uh, who has a wonderful yield of his crop. And he goes, man, I'm going to tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and I'm going to tell myself, self, you have more than enough for many, many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then what does the Lord say to him? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. Who then will get all this stuff? And here's the punchline of that passage. So it is with everyone who is not rich toward God. You see, the thing that the people of this world want more than anything else is the stuff of this world. That's their only reference point. In all the stuff of this world, gold and silver, guess what? Gold doesn't corrode, but it corrodes in the fiery furnace of God. All the stuff they're trusting and hoping in comes to naught. And they are left with nothing except that which it says will eat your flesh like fire. What he says. The third reason this passage is here is to caution us, God's people, from envying or trying to be like or behaving like God's enemies. There's this strange phenomenon that we take our cues socially, culturally, from, from the haves. You know, we want to drive the cars they drive. We want to wear the sunglasses they wear. We want to wear the, the footwear they wear. We want to wear the clothes they wear. We want to listen to the music they wear. We, uh, we. Meanwhile, they're the very ones who hate and mock us. He, he's already addressed it back in two chapter, six, chapter 2, verse 6, where they're trying to curry favor and impress the very ones who treat them like trash. But there's a great temptation for us to take our cultural marching orders, to have our cultural palette shaped and informed by forces that are absolutely anti the kingdom of God. And so, like we've said before, it is a terrible tragedy when God's people who have been called out of darkness into the light should then turn around and act like they're in the dark. We're called to be ambassadors of light, ambassadors of a different culture. So we have something to juxtapose against that. But finally... The fourth reason that this passage is here is to remind everybody, unbeliever out there, believer in here, that Jesus means it when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Jesus is Lord of Lord, King of Kings. There is no place on this earth where Jesus does not have dominion. So what that means is that everyone everywhere is accountable to him. They have the law of God written 
on their heart, and they will give a, an account. Notice how it says in verse 3 that this, this, their riches that they have accrued and the corrosion that comes in the, in the judgment, it's, what does it say? It says, it will be evidence against you. Evidence? What does that mean? Evidence is a courtroom. Evidence is a trial. Evidence is judgment. Everyone will give an account to God. So the world be warned. What they do with their brazen pride or what they do under the cover of darkness will be shed, will be brought into the light. And us, he's just given four chapters of how our faith needs to be living and vital. We too will stand before a just God. But this passage also is rather ominous. Read it again. There's no call to repent. It's just there. Now, that's there, like that, to underscore the certainty of impending doom. But as we know from the rest of Scripture, the call to repent is always implicit. Repent. For this future that has just been laid out here is your certainty if you do not. And so that whole Jesus being Lord of all, Jesus being Lord here and there, it's one of the reasons why we as Christians are an evangelistic, proselytizing people. We do not honor closed countries because there's no ruler on the earth who has the right to say this people is off limits from hearing the gospel. Jesus says otherwise. And all are his. And we must speak to all people everywhere even the social haves that are leveraging their position in the culture to take advantage of, mock, and marginalize us. So, brothers and sisters, you see here a portrait of people who are cultural haves using their haveness to take it out on the have-nots which are the believers. Judgment is sure. Don't, don't emulate the very enemies of God here. But at the same time, understand that Jesus' lordship overall is the implicit basis for us to take this message to them and summon all people everywhere to repent that they may find life, that they may join the fold, that they may too point others to the one who is the source of true life. So, as we approach the table today, remember, we too were once enemies, but in his grace we were brought near. We were far off, we were hostile. And whatever our background may be, whether we were closer to the haves or closer to the have-nots, we're one family now. And we'll be one family forever in eternity because that's how the kingdom works. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage, this warning to the wealthy. Lord, we thank you for 
the material stuff you have entrusted to us, but it is yours. If it's in existence, it's, it's under your control and you rule over all. Help us to be good stewards of that which you have entrusted to us. To see our wealth as a means of blessing and to not live self-indulgent, self-satisfied, ambivalent lives. Grant, O oh God, that we would have hearts of compassion that are faithful both to warn but then to offer repentance. Grant, O oh God, that in the final day you would be glorified in the great multitude of the redeemed that come from all walks of life, that come from former blasphemers to just thank you for redemption. And we ask that you would be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.